Welcome to the Happy Mindset. Today's episode is episode number 70, and today's episode title is called Engineer Your Life. So today I'm joined by Becky Paraz. Becky's got over 20 years of experience as an engineer in the construction industry. She's got five years as a project manager. She's a female leader for empowerment, confidence, and passion. She's also an author. She wrote a book called The Words of Beck. The premise of that book was about how do people start believing in themselves when they don't know what that looks like. So I think I think that's a very interesting premise. And uh, somebody who's got that on their mind, I'd recommend to give it a read. So on today's episode, Becky talks about some of the things she's overcome in her life. She had some difficulties growing up. She had some challenges. And she talks about how she saw them as opportunities, as obstacles that she could move maneuver around. She talks about how she learned to read a tree, how she beat her father at chess, and how that came from belief that the power in that the power in her believing that she could do these things and not believing that that she couldn't do these things. So I enjoyed talking to Becky. She provided some great insights into how to start following your own path and some insights as well around being a female in a male-dominated industry, how to make that work for you and how to also make that work for the people around you and how an understanding of your emotions and what's going on internally can help you to move forward in life and help other people to move forward at the same time as well. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for joining us today, Becky. Glad to be here, Dennis. So my first question for you is, who are you and what are you doing in the world today? So my name is Becky, and I am an engineer by trade, a project manager by profession, and a writer by preference, I suppose. So I do, I wear a lot of hats. I tell everyone I run about, I run about four lives between what I do and and that sort of thing. And um, so I spent 30 years in construction, managing some really major projects and having an amazing and incredible career during that space. Um, In the last five years, I've spent writing more creatively about leadership, uh, resilience, confidence, all that sort of stuff that I've learned through being in a a male-dominated industry. And I'm starting into fiction now. And in that translation, I'm also looking at offering some coaching and mentoring services to people because I've been given much feedback that I am very good at that and I have a lot to offer in support of of women in particular and women in industry obviously Um, but in terms of the things I've learned I kind of want to give back and and share the hard-won lessons that I have with people so they don't have to go through what I've gone through in order to to get to where I get where I got to. Sounds interesting so how about the construction engineering how did you get into that? It's one of those, I was at school uh, a long time ago now um, and they had the the guidance counsellor there and, you know, in the senior years, oh, what are you going to do and who are you going to be? And I had no idea. I kind of wanted a career, uh, good money, well paid, excuse me. Um, So I was good at maths and science. I was doing technical drawing or or graphics which before computers was when you had to hand draw all the designs that the engineers would use. And that's now giving you an idea of how old I actually am. Um, And so architecture was six years and that was way too long. I I need money before that. I want to get out of my home. I want to have a good life. And, you know, this is the, this was the path I I saw. So engineering. Now, no one knows what engineering is. Oh yeah. Engineering. That's what we work with machines and things. Yep. That's kind of it. But, the interesting thing about engineering is the four-year degree teaches you how to learn. It teaches you the basics, but it doesn't actually teach you how to build buildings. Being out on a construction site teaches you that. So after I sort of did all that theory and worked in offices for a while, I, I realised I had this massive gap in my in my knowledge and understanding of how it all came together. So I went out on site and was instantly addicted and spent the next 20 years trying to be out on site as much as possible instead of the office. So... I got started because I went to an orientation day to find out what all this was all about. And the um, professor at the time looked around and there were, there were 600 plus guys and 10 females. Um, it wasn't a popular career choice back then. And he was really, really positive with us girls kind of saying like, this is, you know, this industry is going to change in, in 50 years. There'll be far more women here, but you ladies are the outliers. You are the people, you are the, you are the women who will make it easier for other women and set the example and show them how, how amazing this career can be. So best of luck. And 
it was kind of, it was really touching that this, you know, super senior um, engineer, he was a master, he actually has gone on to be in politics and all that sort of stuff. So, so he was a pretty powerful guy. He had this amazing presence and here he was giving us ladies acknowledgement over and above the men, which was kind of new. Um, and he was, he, he was genuine, I think, was kind of the surprise as well. He was, he was absolutely for sure that we ladies were the ones who's going to make a change. And I suppose that's always stuck with me and been really powerful. And, of course, looking back now, kind of going, well, he probably was right about that. But if he hadn't have said it to me, I don't know that I would have stuck to it probably through some of the hard times. But that, that um, message always came back to me. During during the early years, to kind of I know I look it may have set up an obligation that I felt that I must do this for other women and future generations, but it it was also a challenge. You know, it was also a well, if you think you're good enough, you can be. So it was a case of I never felt I was good enough, but I held on to the I can be. So I kind of flipped it and went, well, if I can get there, then maybe I'll believe I'm good enough. Now, that didn't actually work too, but the journey through there is what also gave me the ability to believe in myself. So that, that sounds like you kind of gave you a why through the hard times then, was it? Was that, it seemed like that was the, what you fell back on, that, that kind of vision he gave you to start when you got into this. I, it, was, it was partly vision. I think it was partly vision, partly challenge. But I think it was also just... I think he knew how hard it was going to be. So I think his mind, yes, this was something that maybe we could hold on to when it got really challenging to be in the industry. Be reminded that it's not just about us. You know, it's not just about me in this moment experiencing this. It's about the generations of women who are coming after me. Okay. So and so what that. example... Yeah, yeah, I think that was that was it. it. Was bigger than me. He gave me something that was bigger than just me. So it wasn't just selfish, altruistic. I wasn't a selfish kind of. I'm just going to go have a great career and get lots of money. Now it became an altruistic um, sort of exploration as well. So, and I suppose that's you can see there. there that's a part of where I sort of started looking at this. Well. The, the, what I call the, the, the dark side, you know, there's a selfish element to this. It's like, well, I'm going to get lots of money and I'm going to, you know, going to be um, a forerunner and my name's going to be in history books and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's, you know, that's for want of a better term, somewhat selfish in terms of goals and we all have to have those. But I work better when I have a goal outside for me that's bigger than me and so this gave it to me back then. And it was right. It certainly did help for the first couple of years when it was just, what am I doing here? You know, because then you get a little imposter syndrome kicking in as well, kind of, and, and and you get the feedback. A lot of men back then were quite happy to tell me, you don't belong here, this is our world, girly. Mm. So it was something to hold on to, to keep going back to you, to go, well, hang on, that's that's fine that you believe that, but you're a plumber on a site. I've had a professor tell me that I can make this happen. Just to give myself some perspective of where I was getting feedback from, that, that was kind of helpful too. So what were the, some of the biggest challenges you faced in the industry and how did you overcome them? <laughs> uh, how long do we have? <laughs> um, yeah, biggest challenges. Do you know what? The biggest challenge is actually accepting myself. The biggest challenge is being a smart, highly intelligent, highly motivated, um, quick thinker who's also female in a world of men that may not have all of those skills, it's very challenging. Um, and because I had such a dysfunctional childhood and hadn't learned perhaps some social graces and elements that other people would have had access to around the dinner table um, through the course of their life, I was... The word they use... It, the use for it when you're a man is assertive. The word they use for it when you're a young lady is aggressive. So, and I probably was aggressive in some regards because I was very angry. Um, I couldn't understand at 19 why, when I could do it and I was smart enough and I knew what I was doing, I still couldn't be thought of as good enough as the men. I, so I never had a problem with equality. So I never felt unequal. My, my constant battle was butting up against the system that kept telling me I was unequal and me wanting to fight that and going, but it's not true. And realising that that system is much bigger than this one person and it's not going to change overnight simply because I demand it to be so. Um, 
so again, more incentive to stay in the industry and keep fighting for the women who have come behind me. Um, the biggest challenges, accepting myself. I keep coming back to that. It was probably the biggest challenge because I had so many external messages saying you don't belong here. Plus I had my own childhood and my own imposter syndrome of being female in an industry that was not welcoming. I was telling myself I don't belong here. So it was kind of, you know, that, that beacon of light is that, hang on, the professor told me I belong here. There's one person who believes I can do this and he's more qualified than everyone else who's telling me. So I'm just going to keep going. So I just kept going. So that in itself taught me resilience. But I think the other, the biggest challenge, and I think it's still in, in the industry somewhat today, is being heard. You know, the fact that I am strong, powerful, intelligent, got lots of experience, done lots of different jobs and have a lot of, and have deliberately brought a wide range of skills to my role in order to be as flexible and as able to deliver projects as possible. Not being recognised for that time and time again kind of is really wearing. So it basically forced me to recognise myself. Kind of, you know, in the industry, it's like, do you still have a job? Then there's your feedback, you know. And I was very needy, I suppose, in wanting feedback because I needed to be told I was doing the right thing. I needed reassurance because I was never told that as a child. So you can see how all this mess from my childhood is playing out in this male-dominated zone, um, which in itself is a challenge because of my childhood. So there's just how I made it, I don't know. Mm. Um, because I just, you can see how every single thing was stacked up against me not to, not to get through this. But I'm stubborn and I don't give up. And... Plus, I had the arthritis thrown in there as well, just, just you know, for just extra challenge. Um, my boss, my second job, I was sacked Christmas Eve because I've got rheumatoid arthritis. Three months later, the Disability Discrimination Act came in. So these are the kinds of things I went through in my career. So when you say, like, what's your biggest challenge? The, just, mm, the biggest challenge was just staying there and keeping on going and believing in myself, to, to be honest. And the mm. feedback that I got every day was so completely opposite that I had to get so strong, which is probably why I'm scary now to a lot of people and how confident I am because I had to earn my confidence. I had to go and find it. I had to embrace it and I had to hold onto it when no one wanted me to have it. So it's not something I let go of easily now. Yeah, it sounds tumultuous. But like, when did you start realizing that the issues were deeper than what you thought they were to begin with? Like, like it was, you were saying there that, that a lot of the stuff coming up from childhood. When did you start realizing that it wasn't just like your present day problems, that it was actually attached to the past as well? It was, it was in my role. And I was having, I suppose, I was having an escalation of reaction to the aggression around me. So back then I won't say exactly when but back then you know bullying and the poor toxic masculine behavior and the aggression and the chest beating and all that sort of stuff was far more prevalent because it was allowable so I found myself in an office and look it was a big project lots of pressure American involvement all that sort of stuff so I understand now being in those roles um, back then I was very junior so I understand the pressure these gentlemen were on, but what I was experiencing was aggression every day. There was always someone yelling in the office. There was always chairs being thrown and doors being slammed and men calling each other by these ridiculous and very eloquent in some ways names. Um, and what I was realising is that that I was reacting. I was running away. You know, I had to, I'm like, oh, I've got to go for a walk. I'm going to go for a smoke. I'm going to go for a drink. I'm going to go lunch. And I was reacting to this violence in the air as if I was still in my home where there was always violence in the air. And it just kind of hit me one day that every time someone acted badly, I ran away and I had to go through this process of telling myself that it wasn't my fault. Um, which, you know, when you're a 24-year-old, 25-year-old woman, engineer, doing all these things and you think you're an adult, suddenly realising that you think every time someone loses their sh this stuff in um, in an office is your fault. That's kind of confronting, to to say the least. I suppose. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, it was in that exploration of kind of like this isn't healthy. I'm not able to get my job done. I'm freaking out every time I hear raised voices, and I want to be in this industry for another how many years? It's not going to stop because it's filled with men who have their say in various ways need to do something about it. 
And that's when I started to go. So, and to me, it was fairly obvious men being aggressive, men being aggressive in my childhood. It's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a psychotherapist to figure that out. So what I had to figure out was how and where and what I was going to find to work my way through this. And there and God, that was a five year journey. Um, what were your first that's steps? When I got into what were some of your first uh, steps from that realization? So, okay, so I'm an engineer, so everything is research, okay? Go and research, go and find information, go find facts, go build a picture in order to then build a design or to then solve a problem. Um, so that's kind of my engineering training, and I've always found that process useful, even to get more information. So I, and that's, so that's where my exploration, I suppose, through the self-help movement um, started and where my cynicism comes from as well I suppose so I started looking and so there wasn't really Google back then in fact no there wasn't Google back then there was barely internet back then so it wasn't it wasn't something that you could go and put into an internet search like you can these days and I suffer from bad reactions to aggression you know you can type that into Google and you can actually get some potentially functional help these days back then you couldn't so uh libraries um you know things like the the sort of the mystic healing centers that were starting to pop up back then um any books, you know, I, I, any, books out, any books stand out in your mind from from back then when you went into the library yeah look um the, the one that really stands out i suppose that gave me a whole new perspective and exploration even though i do believe the book is incorrect was you can heal your life by louise hay now, I have a really big problem with that book having gone through the other side of the exploration because essentially it makes everything that you experience through ill health your fault. That's not true. It's never true. And it's very damaging to someone who has been told all her childhood that everything is her fault to then tell her that her disease is her fault. It creates a very bad paradigm of belief. So, unfortunately, I did pick it up and carry it with that for a while. Of course, determined, motivated, never give in. Okay, if anyone can heal herself through her power of her mind, it's going to be me. Now, in order to just put that in perspective, I was told by my doctor when I was 18 I'd be in a wheelchair by the time I was 24 and I probably wouldn't live past 40 due to the medications. The disease itself wouldn't kill me, but the medications I would be on for the rest of my life would probably have a detrimental effect and I wouldn't be around past then. So that's pretty dire to be told at 18 when you have big plans for a big career. So that all of these things combined gave me a whole lot of motivation and a deadline. So I didn't have time for dicking around here and dicking around there. I'm like, I've got, I've got 40 years, well, less than, um, on this planet. I need to get my career done. I need to achieve what I want to achieve. I need to have traveled. I need to have done all those things. I need to do it by 40 just in case. Uh, and I did, uh, which is that's why I'm very tired. So what, what started me on this whole path was having the idea that I could control my body through the power of my mind. And that's what that book gave me. So all of the rest of it, big discussion there about whether it's healthy for people to read or not. But the idea that I could control my own body through the use of my mind was something that I had never, ever been exposed to before. So that was the revolutionary idea I got from that. Um, now, I, I don't believe you can kill cancer with the power of your mind. As much as I would love to say that's true, 30 years of living with rheumatoid arthritis and trying to cure that with the power of my mind, I'm telling you it doesn't work. I'm telling you that science is, and that's just that. What you can do with the power of your mind is learn to be happy and accept and overcome the limitations that come with that um, piece of bad news that you then have to live with for the rest of your life. And I suppose that's the journey that started. Working through my mindset and realising that just because my father told me I was no good and that I shouldn't be here and that I was nothing but a, a tool to serve men and, 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 I didn't have to believe any of that. It suddenly was in my power to go, that actually isn't true, it was never true, and I don't have to believe it or act as if it's true from now on. When you really, really feel that about something you've been told all your life, it's incredibly freeing and it's incredibly powerful. So that was sort of the process I did for a couple of years. And so everything that I had ever been told, I looked at and I broke apart and I broke down and I, you know, ripped the guts out of to explore and 
tried to transform what that once made me feel like into something that I was never going to feel again and be the almost opposite of. So for every time that, you know, I was told that I'll never amount to anything, I made sure I won an award, which is probably why I have lots of awards. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it was an incredible journey, but it also took me to coaching. So I've done a couple of coaching qualifications and the power of understanding the language I use in my own mind to talk to myself and how that influences what I do in the world was just phenomenally useful for me. And then I went and used it in my job. And the ability to change my language and alter my language to talk to men, particularly in that environment, to engage with them more and encourage them to achieve what the project needs, changed my career around. I went, I, I tripled my wage overnight. I all of a sudden was getting that respect that I'd always wanted but never really received. So just, and it was amazing, just language, just the way I changed talking to people. So I learnt more communication and altered in order to get them to communicate with me better. And it was the most powerful thing I've ever done. And, and here I am. And now I'm trying to sort of incorporate all of that into lessons that I can pass on to other people so they don't have to do that big, long journey that I did. I can kind of shortcut it and go, hey, here, you don't have to have all the angst and sleepless nights and, you know, soul evisceration I suppose that I went through here's what I got from it here is it distilled in some sort of function that you can use hopefully good luck uh, which is what I've then I suppose condensed into my book uh, the words of Beck and that's really what I've tried to do I suppose is all of that exploration and all of the dross that I had to get rid of from that exploration distilled down into something that I hope is really functional that says if you don't know what believing yourself in looks like here is the process and start with this and work through this. And by the end of it, hopefully you will have discovered that you do believe in yourself and what that feels like. Mm -hmm. In that process, did you, did you see the relationship between the emotion and your communication? Did that oh God, shift yes. in any way? Yes. Yeah. And in yes. what way? So it's a process in coaching whereby you have to hold the space. So, it's hard to describe without sort of getting into that whole theoretical, but it's basically it's between uh, between feeling an emotion and expressing an emotion. There is a small window of opportunity to stop and check in with yourself, whether that is the emotion you want to feel, whether it's the emotion you want to express and it's the emotion that you want to deliver to get the result that you're after. And so it's about identifying that space of going, and also this is where recognising and knowing your emotions comes in very powerfully and why it's so important. So it's about going, oh, I'm feeling X. That's come up because of W, Y, Z. Um, this is an inappropriate emotion to display to this person because actually it's my issues, not this. Or actually this is an appropriate emotion to display to this person because what they've done is not acceptable and I need to communicate that to them in some way. So that recognition of what's the emotion and where has it come from allows the communication to the other person to be very clean. Because what a lot of, again, and this is, this is where I'm, I guess I see hopefully our education moving towards at some point, allowing the exploration of what does an emotion, where does emotion come from? And there's so many interesting theories and, and stories out there about people exploring this, but essentially it's not just the emotion from that particular point, that emotion from that particular point, if it's ever been raised before has a whole string um, behind it of related emotions. So if I'm feeling, let's pick an emotion. Uh, if I'm feeling confronted, there's a, there's a good one for working in engineering. I felt confronted quite a lot. So if I'm feeling confronted and that's a big emotion that I'm trying to work through. If I have a, a history, shall we call it, of being confronted regularly and having negative outcomes from that, all of that fear and angst and negative emotion is attached to me feeling uncomfortable in this circumstance. Am, am I kind of making sense? Are you following me? Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. So when you kind of use, when you are sitting in that emotion and, and communicating from that space, it's not just about what's going on then and there. It's got years of anxiety and baggage essentially attached to it that you're dumping on this person who has just asked you about the circumstance. 
And that's the recognition that I think is missing on both sides of communication is that sometimes this emotional dump you get from people that's unexpected and weird has all of that baggage behind it and it's not about you. And just take a step back instead of immediately jumping on the offence bandwagon. Um, and also to the other side is I think people who have these overwhelming and overly expressive emotions, understanding that it's not that they're wrong, it's not that they're emotional creatures or whatever the phrases are we call these people, it's that they've just got a backup that they need to release and maybe you know, take the pressure off, like popping a, pop a Coke can or a soda pop, just, you know, let the bubbles out a little bit. Um, and this is where I think our, our mental health therapies should be looking at, not, not about trying to necessarily come up with more tablets. And I understand the tablets are very important in helping balance chemicals. My mother herself is on them for the rest of her life. Um, it's not about replacing that, but it's about allowing the skills that are out there for people to manage their emotions to become far more accessible and far more acceptable in society to be talked about because that's the gap. They're all out there. These skills and these capabilities and these support mechanisms are available to people to learn. We don't teach them in schools. We don't teach them to our young men. We don't encourage our young ladies to use their brains to overcome their emotions. We don't encourage our young men to express their emotions. And just how on earth can we possibly be happy, functional people when the one thing we are never, ever trained and never, ever encouraged to talk about is how we feel? Why do you think we're not taught to, we're not taught about our emotions and we're not taught how to think as well? That's, that's how I feel. Or maybe you don't feel that way. Like, what, what's your thoughts around that? I agree with you. I don't think we're trained to think. And it's not about, oh, I'm thinking now, I'm using my brain. It's about uh, a reasoning. I think it's reasoning and logic. We're not trained to use a process in our thinking. So that's probably the distinction I'd make there. But I, I would agree with you. We're not, we're not encouraged to be fully realised, self-explored individuals that are welcome to express who we are. That is not what our society raises us and gives us the skills to do because that way in terms of a governing society is really chaotic because then you have all these individuals who just want to go and do these individual things. Whereas if we train people to be very similar and put them in little boxes and schools and we push them out the other end, they're a lot more manageable in terms of the society. Mm. Um, and that's just become a habit, you know, as people grow and as this model becomes a habit. So, I would like to see, no matter where, no matter how we do it, more education around being comfortable with what goes on inside us instead of just what goes on in outside us, I think. And, mm -hmm. on, and all genders, I think everybody can value and learn value from this. I see my, I have a friend who's raising a three and a half year old and I see her really helping, um, struggling as well, but really helping her son understand what he's feeling um, and be able to say, you know, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling upset, I'm feeling cranky, and get more specific with his emotions. And I think she is, she is doing that little boy so much of a favour for his adult years. I think from school he may have, have some struggles with it, but for his adult years to be so comfortable with that, I think she's doing an amazing job getting him ready for that. And I'd like to see more of that in the world, I think, as we grow as a society. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that might be blocking it is I think a lot of us fear the dark side of us, like our emotions and of who we are. So like for you, like how, how, was, how have you owned some of the dark side of yourself and how has that helped you in your life as well? So I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's this, this potential for mischief, this potential for negativity and the fact that we, again, during our childhood, if we are angry or upset, we're told to shut it down. We're not, we're not encouraged to explore why we might be throwing this tantrum. We're told to behave, be quiet, um, be good. And that's both all children, both, both genders. So by the time you become an adult, there's this message that we don't talk about emotions already inherent in our consciousness. Um, so when it comes to then the darker side of those things, so, you know, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling rage, I'm feeling injustice, I'm feeling like I want to lash out or whatever those more strong negative emotional feelings are, who and where do you go to talk about it when we can't even talk about our positive emotions? You know, who goes to work going, I feel happy today. And is it looked at weirdly because one, who says that about work, but two, who does that? Because as a society, all oh, that's a bit too, you know, overt. We call those people crackers, you know? So it's, 
it's really interesting. We're not, we're not encouraged to show extremes of emotion, but the extremes we are encouraged to are never the positive ones. You know, it, it's very rare to see someone lose themselves in fits of laughter in public these days because it's just not done. But someone losing their marbles in public and having a screaming fit or losing it at their kids, you kind of just got, oh, yep, kids. And it's more acceptable. So, and I think social media also also plays that out. So, but what, what it sets up, I think, is in this negative punishment cycle. So we see someone act out on the dark side and then there's immediately this punishment. And again, that comes back to our training. As a child, you misbehave or emote in a way that's not accepted in that time, you're punished. Um, you go to school and you don't do what you're told, you're punished. You go to your job and you don't do your job, you're punished. So there's this punishment cycle that we have this expectation of. And I think a part of that teaches ourselves that when we are in fact negative and we recognise that perhaps we've been a bit poor in our behaviour and we've embraced that dark side a little too closely, we then self-punish. Um, so no one knows who does it. We're not going to go and confess, but then we self-punish. And there's a lot about religion that encourages that too, which I'm sure um, you can understand. And that's a whole other topic. But everywhere we go, whenever we do something naughty, we're punished. And so we do that for ourselves. So I think the idea of looking at our dark side and understanding that we don't have, we're not perfect. We're not 100% angelic. We're not 100% evil. No one is. There's always shades. And I think exploring that, well, I have a habit of doing this when I'm angry and that's not very pleasant to other people. I may not be able to stop doing that, but what I can do is recognise that I do do it, recognise the impact on others, and if I do it, know how to go and clean that up. So it gives me more power to create the outcomes I want instead of being subject to the emotions creating the outcome. It gives me, recognising my own dark side gives me less fear over it. So a lot of people are very afraid of the capability in that dark side. And, you know, you see that in the exploration of, of things like serial killers and, and people who do that kind of really extreme acts in society. There's always this exploration of their psyche and, you know, how many times have we heard, oh, but he was such a nice guy. Well, that's great. And everyone has that capability. But I think the inability for us to be, feel safe looking at our dark side in the society is creating a great deal of fear around it. And that's actually having a more negative effect because whatever you're afraid of becomes bigger and bigger, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, the monster in the closet, the more, as a child, the monster in the closet is always bigger and scarier the more you think about it and focus on it. And I think that's the same with our dark side. So this, this walking away and, and I suppose almost denial of it, I think is just as damaging in our society as everything else we've talked about. So I think the ability to look at it, to own it, to know it, takes away that fear. If, if you know it and you act out that way, you can recognise that you've done that. And as I said, clean that up quickly. Instead of leaving that sit there as a, you know, a longer-term thing that can fester and, and create a lot more bad blood. Um, an example of that is I have, a, I have a temper. I tell people I'm a dragon. You know, I will be patient, I will tolerate, I will tolerate, and then all of a sudden I'm just like a volcano and I will explode. Um, and I did that on the job one day and I did that very publicly with a young man. Uh, so you can imagine... There's, what, there were about 50 blokes. I'm losing my mind at 6 o'clock in the morning with this kid and I'm talking bad language, personal attack, you name it, I was doing it. And it was very poor behaviour. But my boss had done it to me and we call it taking a pineapple. So I was sitting there with a pineapple and somewhat unpleasant and I was passing that on. Um, and I was recognising it at the time, but the problem was he also smirked at me and I, I get a real twitch um, you know, young engineers smoking, senior person yelling at them, just, just maybe explode even more. So it's a funny story now because I had three blokes who were listening to that come to me and go, can you never do that to me, please? They were terrified. They were, they were begging me if I ever, ever do the wrong thing, can you please come and tell me, don't ever, ever yell at me like that. You are terrifying and you're scary and I never want that to happen to me. So I was like, okay, well, there's benefits because it pulled them all in line. We're like, hell, we are never going to misbehave and get that done. Um, but, of course, this poor 20-something-year-old 20 guy was mortified. He was embarrassed and, of course, as a young man, he was then very, what's the word? I don't even know the word. He wasn't aggressive, but he, would just, he just shut down emotionally and he was like, do not talk to me. I can't talk to you. He was just closed off to me because of what I'd done. Withdrawn. Understandably so. 
yeah, withdrawn, but even more, like there was a brick wall I was not going to get through with this kid and I was never going to be able to work with him again, which was the scenario we had at the end of the day. Now, one of the things my gender gives me is an ability to say I'm sorry a little bit easier because we've had a bit more practice than you guys. The other thing in the industry is that doesn't happen. So I saw an opportunity to change the outcome that I'd made through my dark side and bad behaviour by just going and saying I'm sorry. So I called his boss, made sure his boss was there um, because I wanted him to have the sorry in front of people as well because it's all well and good to lose my nana over him and eviscerate him publicly. If he didn't get the public apology, then there still was an imbalance in that. So I wanted some people there. So I made sure his team was there with him. I came over at the end of the day and offered him an apology. Now, the really interesting thing is I was okay with doing it. I, I, I was genuine about it. I should not have acted that way with him. I did, so I cleaned it up. Now, the interesting thing, he wasn't going to accept my apology. He was so wounded and his pride was so damaged that he was just like, mm, yep. His boss, another man, actually turned around and said, don't act that way, and called him on this. He said, you will never get an apology from a senior manager the way this woman is doing it to you, and the only reason you're getting it is because she's not a man. And he, he actually, oh, no, I was surprised. This is a strong Italian male so not the person I would have expected, actually turned around and told this kid that this will never happen. This is a very special occurrence. She actually doesn't have to, but she is, and that's a really big deal. Don't be a, you know, what about it? That shocked me. Um, and it was flattering and it was really positive and I was really touched by that because he was right. Uh, and so we, we cleaned it up. Now, if I wasn't comfortable with my dark side, if I didn't immediately recognise that that was me letting the dragon out and I should not have done it, if I was afraid or if there was any anxiety from me around owning that and recognising that, do you think that boy would have got an apology? He wouldn't have because I wouldn't have been able to clean myself up that quickly to then get to that point. Now, if I hadn't given that kid an apology that day, the next day wouldn't have meant anything. I could have said sorry the next day, but that wound would have just set in overnight. And so. The ability for me to recognise that dark side and take action to clean up the use of that dark side without fear, change that circumstance in the rest of that project. And we were good mates and we hung out and we had drinks and everything was fine from then on. Plus, I had all these other boys being really, really well behaved, which is just an extra bonus because they don't want me yelling at them. But can you see how, had I not been so comfortable with that dark side, none of that would have happened. And that's where I think the being comfortable with it, it's not about pretending it's not there, denying it or not using it. It's about knowing how to clean up after it, I suppose, when it just gets a bit out of control. Mm, that's the hard part. I'm guessing too, like if you were completely unconscious of that, those guys would have said nothing as well because they would have been so afraid of you and they would have realized you wouldn't have taken it in a good way. So that was the first sign that like you weren't completely unconscious. Correct. Yes. Yes. And I think that too... You know, I, never thought, I suppose I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I saw that as, you know, them acknowledging, oh, my God, you're terrifying. Please don't do that. But you're absolutely right. They're also acknowledging that we want to work with you and we don't want you to feel that way. And so let's be more supportive. I took it as a supportive thing. I, I kind of took it as a little bit of a, like, awesome. Um, you know, the ability to scare men on site when you're a female in construction is very handy. Um but it's the reputation I'd rather have than actually use it because it's not pleasant. And I guess, yeah, maybe it helps an example too and that other people know that it's okay to clean up after that stuff because you see a lot of that stuff in the industry. It never gets cleaned up. Mm. It just gets ignored. You just move on. You don't have a beer at the end of the day and forget about it. It's funny though, like the story you told, you told there was like what we are talking about before the podcast, about an opposite end of the spectrum. Men have the tendency to be numb to emotions and women have the tendency to like project emotions, not really have it in control. Like how do we start like getting things in the middle, into balance? Like what, what do you think <laughs> is going wrong in there? Like why are we on opposite ends of the spectrum? Wow, that's like a question for the ages, I think, Dennis. But mm. I think, I think, um, I think with that, just start somewhere. You know, I, I suppose I started on site. You know, I started talking with my boys and I started letting them know that it's okay if they were having a bad day. So I, I, I suppose what I did is I recognised my people. So I know this guy over here and this is generally how he is. And then one day he's not acting that way. I will go and address that with him. And I will do it in such a way to be respectful, to let him know that I'm not, 
challenging him because men, when they're asked about their emotions, they can find that very confronting too, particularly in a work environment. The advantage of being a female who enjoys my job and is so open about who she is on site is that the boys know that they get that with me in a personal sense. I've had so many men come and talk to me about their wives leaving them, um, their, their daughters who are in trouble, their mums. You know, I have so many, and it's not secrets, but I have so many personal stories inside of me that these guys have come to me and trusted me with because I was a girl. And there's 200 other blokes on site, but I was a girl and I was more trusted in terms of these emotional stories because I wouldn't mock them for their emotions. So I think starting the conversations, allowing it to be okay, not, look, I'd love to see this in schools and getting our kids started so much earlier because I actually think that's where it needs to be. But in terms of personal professional development, not backing away from the negative feedback you're going to get should you become a person who is comfortable with your emotions, including your dark side. And that means as a man, you know, when you're kind of talking about emotions and being mocked by your peers, not backing away from that. And in fact, calling them out on it, even perhaps going to the extent of kind of going, well, I'm in a much happier place. You guys do nothing but X, Y, Z, be aggressive, be angry, act out all the time. I'm not having that because I'm actually quite happy to discuss how I feel. Maybe you should give it a go, boys. Mm. And I'm not saying use that language, but I'm kind of saying like instead of, you know, when we, when we have this peer pressure issue where we're mocked, no matter what it is, we tend to back away from what we're being mocked by and we tend to hide it and all that sort of stuff. So it's about being brave and taking that one step further and actually going beyond that mocking and going, giving them a challenge. Um, when it comes to women, I mean, and look, it is so hard because we are so encouraged to be emotional. It's our base. You know, women, hysteria, that's only just recently left our social consciousness that women suffer from hysteria because we have bits that make us hysterical. Um, so allowing women to have their emotions without making them wrong by being too emotional but also kind of allowing women to understand that they can move beyond that emotion and start to break down and work with it instead of just constantly feeling whatever it is they're feeling. Um, there's actually a chapter in my book um, specifically about this where I talk about there was this woman who spilled coffee on herself and she immediately kind of went through this very fast path of getting to the fact that her children were going to grow up criminals. And I was just kind of, hang on, you just spilled coffee on your shirt. Where did you get that from? And she actually broke it down for me and I put it in the book and it's, you know, um, I spilled coffee, I'm going to be late, I'm going to lose my job, I'm never going to get a good reference, I'm never going to get another job, my kids will grow up poor, uh, they'll break the law in order to feed themselves, they're going to ergo, they're going to end up criminals. And she actually went through, and I just went, you don't have kids, you're not married, these are future potentials you're talking about. Because you spilled coffee on your shirt, now, I don't know about you, but I found that to be such an extreme view from what had actually happened. And that's where I kind of went, wow. And as women, we are actually encouraged to be that emotional and take it to that extreme. That is the societal expectation for us. So I can understand women thinking that this is how they're supposed to be. But I can't understand being that way. So I really tried to break that down and kind of go, this is where the male and female journey can really help because blokes can take one look at that scenario and kind of go, hang on a second, you're not married, you're not this, you're not that, change your shirt, five minutes late. It's not going to change your life as much as you think it will. You know, I've, how many blokes have you seen walking around with coffee stands over their shirt all the time and never once had a meltdown over what their children's future is going to be? However, on the other side, the guys are maybe a little bit too blase and kind of don't really get the ability to go anywhere into their emotions and actually discover that the reason that they keep acting out and being so cranky with their employees is actually because they're not feeling loved at home or whatever. Insert emotion. Um, I just know I'm not feeling. It's like, I, yeah, I, I think I'm bought in. Yeah, I think I'm bought in. It's like, a, it's a lack of understanding what the emotion is. It's like, it's a, yes. You're, you're, you're like on, on one end of the spectrum, you're so used to feeling emotions and expressing it, you're completely lost in the emotions a lot of the time. On the other yes. end, you don't even feel the emotion because you've been so numb to it, you don't even realize it's there. And so you can have that so logic, you but you've got the numbness, yeah. you're not actually happy or content as a person. 
Yeah, so then you can't identify it, so therefore you can't manage it and you can't work through it. So this is it. where the com yeah, so this is where the conversations need to start. Are that really basic? What are you feeling? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What do you want to do with it? Okay, that emotion is now called this. Mm -hmm. Um where are those conversations? You know, you've got to go to group therapy or you've got to see a psychologist or a, you know, God knows what, there's plenty of services out there, but you have to know those services are available. You have to know that's what you want. So where, and I'm with you, where does this start? How do we fix this? And it's, it's talking to people like you, people like me, trying to get those, like those words out there, being available in the social media space to make these messages more accessible to people who are looking but have the conversations with people you know start with your small circle of influence and grow and grow out and be strong and powerful in that belief that this is and can only be for the better you know i think a lot of our big global problems is no one's talking about how they feel and there's a lot of conflicting and confusing and big emotions around where our world's at and the decisions that are being made in it, no matter where you sit on the, on the side of that spectrum. Um, and we're also busy trying to run away from these emotions, regardless of where they are, that that's the detrimental behaviour and that's the gap that we're missing is we're running away from all these negative emotions only to find more and we can't get out of that cycle. We just need to go back and maybe look at the original ones and work from there. So I think we're missing... I think we're missing the language we're, because we're running away from the emotions. We're missing the language that are attached to those feelings, those emotions. And then when, once you find that language, we can normalize it. Because at the moment, those feelings are hidden behind words that sometimes have stigma around them, like therapy and stuff. That's where you can find yes. your freedom there. A yes. lot of people are blocked by that because of the word therapy. They don't understand what it is. So they glaze over. It's like, oh, it's not for me. I'm not in problem. I don't have problems. I, so. I don't need to see someone. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Again, that yes, you're absolutely right. The stigma, even just the stigma of talking about emotions. You know, there's a lot of blokes who just think, how do I get out of this? Yeah, um, and well, like... too, you know, I must admit, because I grew up in a man's world, I grew up in my childhood and then, you know, did my career in a man's world. I must admit I'm much more on the man's side. You know, I am... I struggled to express my emotions, which is probably why I explored them so much internally, to know them, because I'm very... I'm very much used to the construction world is, you know, you don't cry, you don't show emotion, you get shit done, excuse the bad language. You know, it's very, it's very action oriented. It's not very feeling oriented. Uh, and it's taken me a while to bring that balance back in. And particularly in the last couple of years, I've had some young female mental ease and that's what's really brought that home to me. Um, even in my own, I suppose, management. And because I've worked with men for so long, I have become slightly more masculine in how I deal with my emotions. And there's a whole lot of, oh, yep, I'll do that later. I don't have time to feel that right now. I'll put that away. And it was really good for me to kind of recognise that I was getting a little bit down that path, particularly when I had a female mentor cry on me for 45 minutes. Now, I've worked in, in, in construction for 30 minutes. I've never had anyone cry on me for 35 minutes as a manager, but this young lady did. And I was so confronted. I was so... I was looking for a way out. I was acting like a man going, oh, how the hell do I get out of here? I've got a chick crying on me. And you, you, you boys would know that's pretty much the reaction. You know, and I was kind of, and I had to check in at the moment going, holy crap, I'm acting like a man here. Um, now that's okay. But I kind of didn't want to act like that. I kind of wanted to be there for her. So I really had to check in very quickly, kind of go, okay, you can't run away from this. Oh, we have to clean this up because we kind of caused it because we gave her feedback and that's why she's crying um, and she needs the feedback. But, oh, my God, I was so confronted. And it was really interesting because I had realised, I realised in that moment how far I'd gone down the path of managing the same way men do. And so that was a really good check-in for me. It's like, ooh, come on, come on back here and kind of remember that it's okay to be emotional and I need to set that example for my team. So, yeah, so that was really interesting. So I think... I definitely think it's the language. And you're, the reason I brought that up, sorry, just to tie back there, is that she didn't actually know the language for her emotions either. Mm. I actually had to go through the process with her. It's like, okay, what are you feeling? What is it? What is it? What is it? What do you want to say? And that might give us... And I actually had to help her recognise some of her emotions. And that's what really made me go, wow. She's a well, she's 30-ish, um, so she's a couple of generations below me. And I just kind of went, now they're, Now we are in a position where young women don't recognise their emotions either. This is not the path that I want the world to take. 
this is, you know, this is, we need to fix this before it becomes too hard and it's too late for all of us. And we're just this, I don't know, this just messy emotional tornado that no one can um, um, unravel, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I agree with you, language. So um, maybe we need to collaborate and do a dictionary of emotions. Actually, I like that idea. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> so, like, where did, when did writing come into your life? Then, so you've written a book. When did when did writing become a thing you wanted to do? It didn't really become a thing I wanted to do. So, I have friends who are writers, and I was looking at a writing opportunity. I saw one, and I was asking more questions to pass on to them. And this lady went, "I want you to write something, lady." Sure, I have nothing else to do. And that's where the secret language of men came from, which was the, the chapter I was talking about in, in this woman who went to, from, you know, coffee to criminal. Um, so that was the first thing I ever wrote creatively. And I based it on a talk I'd done, uh, a presentation I'd given to a women's group as well. So it was, it was kind of one of those messages I've, I've sort of been developing for some time and been quite passionate about. So that's, once I did that, I... I just kind of got a bug because I've been writing all my life. I've been writing project plans, I've been writing procedures, I write system documents on how to do things. Uh, yeah, I've been writing all my life and it's been very technical. So this freedom in this, it was nonfiction but it was still creative. So I wasn't had, didn't have to write to a plan or to a format. I could just kind of write what I wanted in the way that I wanted to deliver it. And I, I just liked the freedom of that. I was like, wow, this is... I've never tried this before. You know, it was almost like a, a whole new way of being had been opened up to me. It's like I can express all these thoughts that we've been talking about and I can put them in writing and then I can reach more people. It was kind of this whole like, wow. Um, so that's the journey started me writing. So I've contributed to 12 anthologies all about leadership and confidence and that sort of thing in the US. I've written for a couple of magazines with, to learn the art of uh, telling short tales because in engineering, more words is better than less. Um, and through that, I've been exploring this whole writing phenomenon. I've discovered that I love it. I've discovered that I really enjoy writing and the freedom outside of my technical writing to kind of to explore a lot of this, these, these thoughts, to explore what we've talked about and kind of put into some sort of... Um, some sort of framework that can help other people it became very important to me. So that's what the first book, The Words of Beck, is all about, is I, I kind of just grabbed all those anthology compilations and just put it in there. So it's a bit scattered. Um, if I did it again, I probably would change the order a little bit. So there's some short poems, there's some short articles, there's some long stories, there's a couple of letters to my parents. Um, and in it is the idea that we've been talking about is that how do I believe in myself when I don't know what believing myself looks like because no one's ever believed in me? And I haven't been around people who believed in themselves to even see what they're doing. Um, that's basically what I kind of try to answer in my book. Um, you know, instead of just, you know, the, the, so there's a lot of empowerment phrases of, you know, just, just, just believe in it and you'll have it. And that's, that's a good start. There's a lot of things that come after that, like action and working towards it. But even that word belief has baggage. You know, with belief comes religion and belief in the external and belief in the other and all that sort of stuff, which has some, unfortunately, particularly in this society, some really big baggage depending on on how you feel about religion and then which one. But also, too, belief is something, it's not tangible. There's no facts. There's no product. There's no, you know, it's very easy to believe in this pen because I can see this pen. But when it says believe in yourself, I can't see myself the way others can. Um, and I see myself differently to the way the others do. So which bit do I believe in? Um, and I think that's, you know, comes back to those emotions and that self-belief is then being able to trust those emotions and know what they are. And it's all this big package of understanding who we are that we're not encouraged to do in a society. And that's where I wanted to start writing and exploring that. One, to reach a lot of other people. You know, I see writing as a way of mentoring to a wider audience and one-on-one. Also, too, I think... If I've been through it and I can help someone else, then why not put it down? You know, I think I have that capability. I'm very privileged and I am very honoured to have a, a great IQ and a great devil, uh, level of understanding and, and I'm widely read and the power to put this language into something that people can read. Then I think I actually, not, not I think, I believe I have an obligation to do that, to help 
all those people out there who don't have the access to resources that I had to get to this point in my life. You know, I am privileged. I don't come, despite not coming from a privileged background, I've earned my privilege and I have the privilege of living in a wonderful country that supports me to have these things. So I, I do feel quite strongly about being able to transform what I've learned and what I've done and how I've come to this level of success into something that I can give to others. And so that's where that writing comes in. That's cool. Another thing I wanted to touch on, I, I heard you say that you, you learned to read a tree. I'm just curious about, like, what did that look like? What did that process look like? I, it's, look, I don't remember it very well. I just mm. know, and so this is partly stories from my mum and partly kind of vague memories, but my mum was reading me Charlotte's Web every night um, uh, to, to go to sleep, as, as you do, as good parents do, um, and I was loving it. Uh, it was sort of, it's, and so it's my first story I ever really remember too. Uh, anyway, at the time, something happened and my mum couldn't, couldn't read to me anymore. What I realised, obviously, as an adult is that's when the domestic violence and the alcoholism was becoming more rampant and I think that's around the time where the violence was becoming extreme in the household and escalating because that's also around the time I do remember those sorts of things. So I suspect as an adult that's probably why the reading at night time stopped. She simply wasn't capable for, for all those associated reasons. The time I was three and I just couldn't get this story and it wasn't fair and she, and I, 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 have, I do have this memory of just her losing her mind at me one day going, well, if you want to read the end of the book, teach yourself to read, do it yourself kind of thing. I have that very visceral memory of being told, well, if you want it, sort it out yourself kind of thing and going, oh, okay, I will. You know, at three, you, you, you don't know that you can't do these things when you're not a socialised three-year-old you don't have lots of friends and all that sort of stuff and you are quite bookish and you love stories. Oh, you mean I can teach myself this? Great. Okay, let's go. So I did. And that. I think that probably set me up for the rest of my life is because I've always been a don't, oh, I, I, I can't hold my beer and watch me do this. I've always been a, oh, that says no, you know, oh, forbidden, don't press this button. I'm the one who's going to press the button. <laughs> um, so I've always been a case of, you know, people have told me you can't do that. I'm like, right, that's just, you've just given me a challenge. And I think it was this little story with this book has probably set up that behaviour is I don't know my own limitations and I was mm. told at that age that I couldn't do it and that's where I talk about what we're told at three has so much of an impact because I wasn't told I couldn't do things then and I did them I taught myself to learn chess uh, to play chess at 10 again my father was playing chess that was really interesting there's lots of all these little curious beasties and you know curious little carvings and because he was the way he was he made a flippant comment um go and teach yourself and then, and then you, I, I might give you a game okay reader so i went and read books and i said oh my god i found this i can't remember what's the check off move or something but it's checkmate nine moves i memorized that so hard so and I, maybe i'm an evil child so i talk about embracing your dark side sometimes you'd have fun with it a 10 i didn't know but i look back and i go hmm, the dark was strong within me so i i learned i learned that particularly so i went and yep okay i've learned now i'm going to play so I wasn't quite dumb enough to win the first game. So I let him win the first game. I beat him the second game. He didn't like that very much for so many reasons. Um, so it had a third game. So the third game, I actually did this nine move um, checkmate maneuver and it worked because it was, it's based on the fact that most people move only a certain number of pieces for the first couple of moves. And it, anyway, it worked. So he, <laughs> Like I said, it was great fun at the time. It was also not very dumb. He obviously lost his mind over that. His 10-year-old daughter, third game of chess she'd played in her life, had beaten him in nine moves. He was not amused. And the entire neighbourhood and my butt knew that. Um, still a satisfying moment for me to this day and age. Uh, but again, I wasn't told that at 10 I shouldn't be able to teach myself this stuff. He never played chess with me again. Um, so there's that. But this is where I go. People are too willing to believe the fences and the confines we are told from the moment we are born about what we can't do and we never ever challenge and go, well, hang on, just because you can't do it doesn't mean I can't do it. We never go, why can't I do it? We're very, we're very trained in our society to sit within the fence and the boundary we're given at birth. 
and I suppose I never was and I never have been, which is why I'm a controversial person and I'm very opinionated and I, I don't tend to have people who are kind of, mm, Becky, take or leave her. I tend to have people like, oh, hell no, or hell yes. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, an extremes kind of girl. Um, and I think all of this behaviour is is what allows me to be able to have all this insight because of what because I've explored those particular moments in my in my own life and gone what was there what's behind that what was I feeling break it down um, and it's given me that advantage to see my own patterns which is I am very prone to a challenge <laughs> mm-hmm. you know if there's something that people say mm, it's never been done before I'll be like great that sounds like that's got my name on it and I've had uh, my career you know you can see that in terms of forerunner in, in construction I'm just that person it took me ages to accept that that's just who I am and that's who I want to be actually um I think if more people could be encouraged to do that in a sharing space that doesn't hurt anybody else then I think we would have a lot happier world mm-hmm. great message like that, that for me is a, an example of the power of belief that's a simple story of that. Well, a lot of struggle and stuff, but yeah, that's belief. Cool. So, uh, yeah, it's been great talking to you, uh, Becky. Where will people find you online if they want to get in contact with you? Uh, I try to make it as easy as possible. So, Words of Beck, B E K. Uh, so, Words of uh, Words of Beck on Instagram. Uh, I think it's Planet Beck Star, but it's called Words of Beck on, on Facebook. Um, I'm sure that people can find me in your uh, little community group, the Happy Mindset, that we've joined. So, I'm more than happy to talk to people about what I've been through and, and what they've been through. I'm, I take a couple of coaching clients a year, and I'm certainly looking forward to getting more books out there and, and trying to reach as many people as I can with this message that it's it's okay not to be okay however there's a path to come back to okay as well yeah perfect no it's been great talking to you it's been great hearing your story and how like diverse it's been and just like the things you've overcome and that's just like your belief and like yeah it's been it's been great talking to you so thanks again for taking your time out today thank you so much Dennis it's been amazing and and for six o'clock in the morning I think I've been very eloquent so I'm pretty impressed with myself there (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair play getting up this hour in the morning thanks again (laughs) so until next time have fun and enjoy the process thank you